How you doing, man? Not too bad. Not too bad. I'm uh, first week of school, so uh, that's always fun. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was like, I was thinking in my Tibetan Tibet Society and Culture class to do a meditation before. Mm-hmm. Not happening. I was <laughs> like, technical difficulties there, other technical uh, difficulties, and then, um, yeah. So, I don't know. We'll see. Expect the unexpected. I think that's the motto of 2020 and 2021. Both were both metal years, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, the 1900s was like two metal years ago, the 60-year cycle, mm-hmm. right? And that oh, was yeah. like, and that was like the Boxer Rebellion. <laughs> so you know, and the 60s, like 1960s, the other 60-year cycle, and that's like, yep. um, I mean. That's tumultuous everywhere, cultural revolution, Vietnam War, all that stuff, yada, yada, yada. So, you know, everyone, and like what was significant about last year in Chinese numerology or Vietnamese, whatever, um, numerology is 2020, so that's four. So a lot of astrologers knew that people get to be a dying. You know what I mean? Yeah. Especially the year of the metal too. Sure. So, and it's the beginning of the whole cycle with a rat, right? So mm-hmm. it's like, you know, 12 year cycle. So, and then rat and ox are always joined together. So that's like metal and metal. Yeah. We're not over it yet. Mm. Clearly. But, but new sense. beginnings from this, new beginnings from, you know, yeah. disaster, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it generally how it seems to work on this planet at least that it, yeah. it often takes something pretty cataclysmic for whatever's going to happen next to happen yeah and i think Karl marx said it best first as tragedy then as farce right like mm-hmm. so this is like totally what's like embodied um where it becomes this farcical thing that you know people are supposed to i don't know understand epidemiology but now Everyone's a, everyone's a scholar with Google, right? So, <laughs> right. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. Sure. I mean, I have an afternoon. I can take in uh, an incredibly complex field of inquiry and then speak coherently based on the research I've done in the afternoon. Yeah, totally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I got, I got in um, some shit with one of uh, a yoga person a yoga scholar because they're like where do you get your information and i'm like i get it from the lancet and they're like exactly my point i'm like oh okay so that's where we're at um <laughs> whatever you know it's like i'm an anthropologist we research relativism right right so but like how the relativism affects i mean one of the things that COVID has shown is that like you know when people talk about oh even during like Trump was like post-truth, you know, I'm like, mm-hmm. welcome to being an anthropologist. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like, it's like, okay, now the whole world understands what it's like being an anthropologist now, you know, mm. and like trying to navigate worlds, literally different worlds, you know? So. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm thinking about both the fact that if you have been trained as an anthropologist, it's unsurprising and you have a certain skill set hopefully that you've been cultivating and developing through that training and i think it's super challenging for so many folks because they're like in the deep end of this pool without 
really a toolkit. Yeah. You know, to like, there's no fins, there's no mask, there's no snorkel, but there's the expectation that you're going to like hang out in the deeps and keep observing. Yeah. You know, but you're like, you got to keep coming up for air as soon as you've got a lock on something and then you like lose the thread. Well, so, yeah. So I mean, beat a metaphor to death. Yeah. And Taryn, you went to Naropa. So like, you know, like, um, I think what helped me was like Nagarjuna's like Tetra Lemma, right? Tadakuchi, mm -hmm. right? Like it is, but it's not, it's neither is and not, and it's both is and not, mm -hmm. but it's like neither both not, is and not, right? So yeah, like, totally. it, and I think segueing that into Chinese medicine, it's like, that's kind of where my stance is, especially when people ask, like, does it work? Right. Mm. So yeah, it works, but I also seen it not work. So then sure. it's like the third positioning is that, yeah, it both works and it doesn't work. And then the fourth is that like it neither works nor it neither doesn't work because it's mm -hmm. like based on the false premise of what works is at that time, at that moment. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like conceptual, re conceptual reality wise, like what works mean is very loaded. Right. If you're sure. looking at it that way. But at the same time, it, it illuminates like your own fallacies, you know. And um, I think that's one of the big differences in some of the practitioners I talk to, especially like the old white boomer dudes, mm -hmm. you know, like they're so certain what reality is. They're so mm -hmm. certain what truth is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know, maybe I come from some pomo shit, but like, you know, I'm just like, I'm like, okay, like I'm always scared about capital T truth. You know, I don't really like, for me, I don't really believe in a capital T truth, you know, because mm -hmm. um, that entails some kind of universalism. Sure. But um, these these homies are like, yeah, like going as bold to say, like, I've never made a mistake in acupuncture. And I'm like, yo, then how are you going to learn? You know, um, and then it's, yeah, I mean, some of uh, some of the people that I interviewed for the ethnography were like hardcore snake oil salesmen and like had mm. followers, you know, mm. and I don't mean just like one or two followers. I mean, had thousands of followers in the process. Um, so, yeah, but um, I mean, you know, <clears throat> no discipline is uh, immune to the cult of personality, right? Yeah. And I think that's the problem is disciplines, too. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like. One thing I kind of enjoy about like rock healing crystal people and like Reiki practitioners, even Qigong practitioners, whatever, I'm not bashing on them, but you know, within my frame of epistemology, ontological arrangement, it's just like, I'm, I'm more, I lean more towards nihilism and I'm like, well, I think Slovoj Zizek said it best that only an atheist can believe. I like, um, take it to the next level and I say only like a nihilist can believe because once mm. you don't believe in anything then everything's like fair game you know mm -hmm. so you know I, li I like to see how these kind of um, practices are manifested and what it means to people you know mm -hmm. um, I don't really care about whether if it's true or not I don't because you know going into the post-truth world a lot of things can be conceptually true um, and on an individual basis can hold true, but for a grand like scale of people that it gets a little bit more intense, but you know, I like to listen to people and like, listen to what people have to say because, you know, they're, they're having a, a 
interesting kind of phenomenology and like an epistemology, right? Mm-hmm. Like how they feel and sense things. I think that's something that's unique about like these um, intuits or intuitives or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it shapes their um, kind of landscape on how they perceive reality, you know? Um, yeah. And then I work with like hardcore scientists, you know, um, and or what we call positivists who believe that truth can only be determined by like clinical efficacy or empiricism, mm-hmm. right? Um, and they have their own biases as well and like have their own kind of metaphysical attachments, even though they won't acknowledge it, like, you know, the P value, for example, right? 0.05, right. Well, <clears throat> you know, that's socially constructed, you know? Um, and like even like an IRB, you know, Institutional Review Board, which is socially constructed, and then the big daddy of them all is funding, right? Sure. So how do you construct yeah. your reality within the clinical sciences is solely based on socially constructed elements, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think those kind of fact productions, um, you know, from the Adorno and Adorno and Horkheimian kind of way of like in dialectics of enlightenment, they talk about how enlightenment is shaped by mythology and how mythology is shaped by enlightenment, right? Mm-hmm. It's the beginning of dialectics of enlightenment. And I think that's like what we see today, right? There has to be some kind of mythos to like shape their enlightenment um, and vice versa. Um, but it's just accepting to those biases is one thing that I really appreciate, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like within the natural sciences and clinical sciences, once they can accept their biases, right? You know, and saying like, well, in England, they kind of make it pretty transparent. They're saying, like, we're funded by the Wellcome Trust or we're funded mm. by this. In America, it's like, it's a little bit more subtle who funds what, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So. Well, <laughs> um, some did you all read the dissertation? or? Yeah, man. Okay. I got about a quarter <clears throat> of the way and then I'm, I'm, I'm hooked. Oh, you're hooked. Okay. Yeah, I'm ex- I'm excited. I can't stop reading it now. Oh, well, wow. Yeah, it's very easy to read. I, I, it's an enjoyable read. Which Good. I, you know, I the not every dissertation I've ever read is like I can. Say yeah, that. it's funny you mentioned that. Um, my mentor Amory Mole, um, she, she wrote actually great. She just released a new book called Eating in Theory. But that's despite the point. The point is is that. She got a huge grant from the European Union um, to present um, different topics. And actually, prior to the, my um, PhD research, my original PhD research was actually Helicobacter pylori in Bhutan, hmm. looking at prevalence rates as well as treatment strategies of Helicobacter pylori in Bhutan. And um, the Jigme Dorji Wongchuk National Referral Hospital got me in to research but it's actually the snag in a traditional hospital that like within their IRB like forbade me to research because there was a researcher prior to me that went in and totally bashed them. Mm. And an anthropologist, I won't say who, you know who you are, but like, um, you know, and really kind of weren't culturally sensitive to the dynamics of the traditional hospital there, which is ITMS Institutional Traditional Medicine School. Um, in uh, Montitang in uh, Timpu, right? Um, so that actually curtailed that whole project, and that was that was my original research. 
And what took basically a year and a half of negotiations with Bhutan took literally two hours to negotiate with the Chinese medicine schools and all the regulatory organizations. I think it's funny about Bhutan because, yeah, it's gross national happiness and whatever, but like, um, but they also adopted Indian bureaucracy, which is a simulacrum of British bureaucracy, which is a simulacrum of like just other like arbitrary bullshit, you know? So like um, one thing I do enjoy about Americans is like, we like to cut red tape, you know, that's kind of like a pride thing for us. Mm -hmm. you know? So um, yeah, what actually took a year and a half only took two hours. And that's what like began my research actually, you know? Um, but yeah, so going through that, it was really interesting because, you know, the, Initial research was actually looking at the dynamics of the school's knowledge production and everything like that. And what I actually uncovered was this like mechanism of power that was built on a house of cards, you know, and no one like within the past 50 years almost had ever critiqued these stack of cards or house mm -hmm. of cards, right? Um, so, and that's kind of what I went into like halfway, I had this like really, um, big existential crisis of like, what am I doing? Like, you know, like the big thing that came to me when I was in acupuncture school, um, with Taryn was that we, you know, there was a big stress that you cannot treat anyone while you're a student, right? That it was mm -hmm. illegal, right? So that kind of unraveled a whole slew of questions for me, you know, like, why? Why is it illegal, you know? And that these people in power create this element of like, oh, it's so safe, but at the same time say that like, we can't like treat people or we can't needle people. And I'm like, that's a really weird contradiction, right? Um, I thought it was safe, you know, um, but, in actuality, what I really uncovered were the people who said that it was safe were at the same time were the ones creating the laws prohibiting people from practicing, right? So it's this really interesting, like, dialectical approach on how these power structures, structures exist within the frame of reference of acupuncture in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. And it's still going that way. It's like, let's raise competency levels where it's literally built on, like I said, again, these house of cards that are not substantiated. Um, and when it is clinically validated, it has been shown that there's no more efficacy to the standardized medicine than to any other epistemology, right? Albeit like TCM, Five Elements, um, Master Thumbs, um, Richard Tan, whatever have you, Leon Hammers, the whole variances of classical Chinese medicine, whatever that means, right? Um, so that means Jeffrey Yuen, Yuen um, and then for Taryn and I, um, the whole Wing Feng Yi lineage, right? Like there's no epistemological weight than anything else, right? And when it's like ontologically configured, there is no like, nothing is not more real than anything else, right? So um, it really questions the whole schools and the whole dynamics of the whole system, right? And that starts to unravel. 
Oh, so the yeah. simplicity. Sorry. Um, and what, oh, good. when I, this is, sorry, I went on a huge tangent about that. But what Amory, <laughs> what Amory Mole told me, because I presented on Helicobacter pylori, and she was the, her and her postdocs were the only one who understood the paper I was presenting. And she says, um, this is a great paper. It's really intense. But my advice to you is just simplify it. And I'm like, oh, okay. So that's when I like throughout my whole dissertation, I just wanted to simplify it so anyone can pick it up and be like, okay, wow, this is pretty crazy. You know what I mean? Uh, so yeah, yeah. To answer your question. I knew we were oh, okay. with that. Yeah. So since folks, I'm guessing in the main who are listening to this conversation haven't read your dissertation, you are talking about the profession being a house of cards. And you certainly explicate that clearly in your writing, but maybe if you would explain a little bit more about what you mean by that for folks that haven't had a chance to read it. Yeah, so um, my the big thing that I was trying to research is what is the standardized medical practice of uh, acupuncture, acupuncture oriental medicine, Chinese medicine, whatever the hell you want to call it, teams, I don't know. Like all that stuff is just like, uh, you're explaining something that really, you're trying to give all these floating signifiers, you know, so like words that don't really have an actual tangible thing to something that's like what I call, actually in my monograph, I call it as a blob, right? So for, t um, Lucas, do you have any children? Um, so uh, Tara and I, we both have children, right? And, you know, um, we're used to this thing called slime, right? You know, they, and people <laughs> even, like kids even hustle this in their school and they make slime and they sell it and shit like that. But like what the slime does, well, slime attached, like if you drop it on the floor, it, it adheres to everything that it touches, right? You can't really get it out and it becomes a part of the slime, right? So I equate that to the medicine, right? Because like within the context, and I call it the medicine very loosely and broadly because it encompasses acupuncture needles, but it also encompasses cuffing, it encompasses gua sha, it encompasses herbs, et cetera, et cetera. It adheres to other cultures and like um, medical cultures that it, that it attaches to, right? But the standardized practice of it is basically getting the slime and hardening it right? Like putting it into an oven where it's like solidified and it solidifies to the mold that it's in too, right? So it's really hard to add more things, but it also, when you try to take things out, it completely crumbles, right? So in that is the like profession, right? When you professionalize something, you're now creating a mold to it and you're creating a mold where it's really inflexible and it's no longer um, permeable to any other kind of containers, right? So, but when it comes to medicine, it's blob, it's messy. It's like, it, you know, in academia, we would call it blob ontology or something sexy like that, right? Um, but like, it, it, the way that the medicine works is that it attaches, it adheres to all these different disparate practices, you know? But when it became professionalized, and that was my whole point was to show the genealogy of professionalization in the United States from the UCLA cohort to the Nevada, like first, like um, California passed the first laws. Um, then like the same kind of cohorts, um, main um, mentor went to the East Coast where he started what is now NISA, um, the New England School of Acupuncture. Um, and then he migrated um, and then he just ended up in 
the Boston Legion, right? But and then you had like other people, um, such as like the people who created TAI, um, Traditional um, Acupuncture Institute, which became Taisifia, now it's MUIH. I mean, uh, it's not as connected, but the founders are connected. And as of 2016, we're still getting paid as like, you know, um, you know, associated with the medicine, well, with the schools. Hmm. But what you what you have is this professionalization that was based on this cohort's interpretation of what the standardized medicine was. So it's like two things removed. And mind you, so for all the listeners who don't know this, that um, what we call traditional Chinese medicine, it's just, it's, no matter what, it's Zhong Yi, um, was the standardized medicine that was basically from um, 1958 when they published Essentials of, um, Essentials of Chinese Medicine or Essentials of Acupuncture, um, which created this idea um, of Bian Zhen Lun Qi, which is um, anything from, is the kind of terminology you hear from like liver qi stagnation, um, kidney yang deficiency, those kind of um, diagnoses didn't exist prior to 1958, right? So that like actually created that Bian Zhen Lun Qi, which literally means dialectics of treatment strategies. Right, um, Bianchong is literally like Bianchong is like dialectics in the Hegelian sense, right? right? So it's this kind of like Hegelian Marxist-oriented medical practice, right. you know. And then what? And when it transplanted into the United States, it became an, an interpretation of that, right? So you have this extra layer that, like, you know, it wasn't empirically validated in during the Cultural Revolution, you know. It's just like this. Kind of combining of the Wei Bing school, which is the hot um, disease school, and the Shanghan school, um, which is the cold disease schools. And this was codified and created so that basically um, barefoot doctors could learn over in the span of a few months and start treating people in the countryside, right? So in the United States, what you had is an interpretation of that, right? And that became the law of the land, right? You know, so since then, you've had this medicine that's not any. I mean, if we're going to talk about biomedical sciences to validate something, hasn't been vetted through that element, but it has been codified into this. You know, what used to be a blob that's now like hard rock. You know, that has only just been cascading into this fucking avalanche. Of like, or a big snowball that's really solidified, but at the end of the day, is not built on anything substantial, you know. Um, and when you're actually trying to bring something substantial that can be universally translated, which is um, based on all the professional or the state boards or state laws are based on, which is patient safety, right? Um, that's probably five percent of the whole education. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and I look into that and looking at, and when they're looking into mechanisms of safety, there really isn't any, you know, so for all you practitioners out there, how many of y'all know how to record a severe adverse event or an adverse event for that matter? I can guarantee you can't unless you like cannot, unless you like actually been into the clinical sciences, you know, so what we're actually should be focusing on or 
and the British ought to be focusing on, right? Um, we're not, you know, and that's what kind of, um, so I wanted to flip that upside down. You know, mm -hmm. if there, and then we talked about that last time, is that if there ought to be some kind of standard, well, why not be it safety, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, that's in some, um, and I used this uh, lingo called orientalized biopower, which was really solidifying this idea of an orientalist perception of what people in China, quote unquote. And I make that really clear because it's like China is huge and there's so many different forms of medicine in China, right? But like what is standardized um, and then basically creating that an interpretation of that to be the medicine, right? And not only to be the medicine, but like the you you latch on the practice of Orientalism onto that, right? So this like perceptual view, but it's actually a practice, you know, like when people are like, uh, whether it's down to how they dress in those Mandarin collar, like Tai Chi Chuan clothing to like saying that like, oh, I'm an adopted son of this Chinese family. Um, so there's this white saviorism, right? To like um, what is personified by Qi or like their interpretations of these Chinese characters. So that Orientalist practice becomes into law, right? Because that's how they actually saw the medicine, right? Is that this removed thing. And that becomes this thing where the law determines what is legitimate and illegitimate forms of acupuncture. You get what I'm saying? So like when you add that to the equation, literally the state of California and all the other states are determining what is like the legitimate and illegitimate forms of anything from Qi to like Shen to like Jing, you know, um, which it's to me is like this really teeter tottering between religion and medicine already and that they're codifying it saying well this is how our medicine is when in actuality there's in the humanities you really critique these ideas you know and look at the historical context and um determine that it's not this a historical thing that there's always been this discursive process to it you know but now it's into law you know, so, yeah. So I think one of the things as I'm listening to you talk about this, that I'm wondering, um, I mean, there's a couple, uh, let's see. So part of the dynamic that I hear you speaking to seems to me to be pretty much unavoidable in any human endeavor, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're always going to be in some way um, having a perceptual frame that we can either choose to acknowledge the context of or not. If, yeah. if you know, many people aren't even aware that that's something they could acknowledge, right? But, yeah. You know, so we have this way that we're we're gapping whatever the emergent practices from the way that we're going to talk about it, and then the way that we're going to structure systems um, to curate, collate, you know, regulate it. Yeah. Um, so part of what I wonder about with regards to that dynamic is would you say that what's happening and what has happened in American Chinese medicine 
is substantively different than that kind of phenomenological process that seems to be underlying pretty much every human endeavor. I mean, we can, I'm not uh, saying it's necessarily good, bad, or indifferent, right? I'm just observing that it seems to me like these dynamics are at play mm. in a really broad um, space, so to speak. Yeah, um, this is perfect. This goes into what I was about to um, elaborate on is that I'm, I'm really kind of um, juggling this idea of miscommunication. Um, and um, I think that there's how things are processed and how things operate is always to some degree of miscommunication, right? Or mistranslation, right? Mm -hmm. In science technology studies, we talk about the process of translation and what that means, not just like from different languages, but like the whole operatives of languages in itself, having like what Derrida, Jacques Derrida called like difference, right? And it's saying that there's always this gap in like, he was more talking about hermeneutics, um, but like in the process of textual understandings. But I argue also that miscommunication as how we function and how we create these like elements of antagonism as you can see from our wars that we have now um uh failed <laughs> right i guess there's no failure or whatever winning but like yeah. you know i think this element of miscommunication is really unique because it's actually like how we actually find great things as well you know mm -hmm. Um, so there's something to be said about that dynamic and phenomenologically, um, within the speculative realist camps, like Levi Bryant, um, and Ian Bogost and even Graham Harmon, Graham Harmon talks about withdrawal, right? Like, so things, um, literally things are always ontologically withdrawn, right? We don't really actually understand their reality. Um, Ian Bogos calls this alien phenomenology. He wrote a book called um, Alien Phenomenology or What It's Like to Be a Thing, right? That we can't actually know what anything can phenomenologically like comprehend because we're not that, you know? And even like temporally, like we would also say like, we're not that other thing, decentering everything as a thing, right? Um, that like I will never understand Terran phenomenologically because also the realm of temporality that like, you know, the whole idea of impermanence, you know, that mm -hmm. Terran will phenomenologically understand or even forget new things. So like Landlack at that time at like 10 o'clock, 10.09 on September 2nd, you know, I might, you know, once I get to that point, he's already you know, change, you know what I mean? Phenomenologically, you know, in his um, perceptions and feelings and like how he um, understands the war, like feels in this world, you know? So I think that's one of the things where miscommunication is an operative and should be accepted. You know, I'm not a transcendentalist at all. I believe in affinitude, right? Quentin Mele Sue wrote this really great book called um, After Finitude, where he talks about, you know, this mind-to-mind -mind correlate that we have epistemologically is really limiting. And but that's the point is that we should accept our limits, right? Instead of trying to transcend something when we don't even conceptually understand, like 
the whole realm of our limits. You know what I mean? So like um, when we're still trying to unravel our limits, you know, let alone trying to transcend it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I appreciate that perspective from the speculative realist camps, you know. Um, and I think that when it comes to Chinese medicine, that there are so many that there is a huge level of finitude to it that we can't just lock it into one thing. And that's why it's like nearly impossible or it's, it's really kind of, um, it's a disservice to Chinese medicine, acupuncture, whatever you want to call it to professionalize it. Right. Um, but what my friend Parker Creek, he, he's a professor. Um, he argued that one of the elements of modernity is professionalization. Right, like people in modernity, and this goes with Foucault and talking about disciplinary power, right? Mm-hmm. That there's always this process of continually wanting to um, professionalize, and that's a part of the anthropological plane in researching the moderns, right? Right. Um, is looking at this urge to professionalize, urge to have competency levels, even though it's not built on anything substantive. You know, so um, it's overcoming that, which is a weird thing. And um, I don't know. I don't I think, you know, when it, I really put thought into this, that if it does become deprofessionalized in some manner, that people still want this urge to have some mechanism of professionalization, you know, mm-hmm. so um, because they how want would you to be distinguish accepted. how would you distinguish between professionalization and uh an educational process pardon me an educational process that ideally would give rise to a level of skill understanding and efficacy um so you mean like uh, okay so say person x would love to learn whatever this whatever the discipline is whatever the field of inquiry is right and they currently only know that it exists yeah right but they aspire to whether it's chinese medicine or something else yeah um become conversant enough in the space and in the the techniques and processes and epistemics of whatever the field is yeah they can actually be of use working within that that field right and if it's a medical field then you know what to me that would mean is that they probably could help some people more often than not and certainly would not harm people um at least you know more often than not hopefully not at all but you know certainly adverse events happen yeah um so then i don't have to think of that as professionalization but it does seem like there is inherent to getting from no knowledge base essentially to having some level of skill and understanding yeah. there's a process right well that... there's a pro yeah um i'm gonna say like two things um yeah one is to answer your question um you and i both come from like the punk rock scene right like diy ethics doing it yourself right like totally. um you know from that also there's a within the punk rock scene um and in the anarchist scene there's all these elements of like workshops on how to do things yourself whether if it's self-care um you know i i went to like workshops back in the day of like 
um, contraceptions, you know what I mean? Like things like that in the medical realm, right? Mm -hmm. um, even in herbal training in like, um, what do they call it? Uh, um, wilderness first aid kind of stuff, right? Like there is not this like firm institution, institutional power, right? right. Um, and in the realm of like um, acupuncture, you know, like I learned from my mom's aunt or my mom's um, uncle and the thing about that is this like the 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 modality he taught me was literally like oh yeah well it's really close to richard ton's thing or richard ton and my um, family's lineage is really similar is that like this looks like a mouth so you start treating this because it looks like a mouth you know what looks like the eyes is like the eyes of the knee looks like the eyes but also your ankle and stuff like that right like that is this kind of like tactile um uh what is the word um like it's a, the pedagogical approach but there's a word um, didactic approach to it that like you can never learn in a school you know but you know at the same time we really have to kind of um uncover and unravel what things are professionalized that don't need to be professionalized you know and some things are professionalized for the sake of professionalization the late David Graeber, his last book he wrote was Bullshit Jobs, right? Is that we're into this process of hyper, um, hyper professionalizing and specializations to the point where a lot of these, we never questioned, well, is, is this job actually necessary? You know? Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's, they don't have that self-inquiry, right? And this is the interesting thing when it comes to medicine and the lines are starting to be blurred with different um, scope of practices, like differences between a physician assistant and a nurse, right? And now also like a primary care um, uh, physician and a nurse, right? You know, and then it's like within the realm of the PCP, an osteopath versus like an MD, right? A DO versus an MD. So, when it comes, I mean, there's these all these elements of professionalization that demarcates these things. But when in practice, you're like, well, there's like this really always this blurred line in it. And that, you know what differentiates a good nurse from a person, a nurse that like is not so good is actually training from like in the field. You know, that's how mm -hmm. you learn, you know. Um, and with that being said, same with any kind of profession, you know, um, or medicine, you know, is you learn from mistakes, you learn from, you learn from like success too, you know, and this is like an element that I want to talk about later is that I think failure is good and we should accept failure. And that like, for me personally, <laughs> um, a lot of my ways of practicing and doings come from failure, not from success. You know, I have a whole chapter in my monograph called Imperfect Decaying Bodies. We can talk about that later. But anyways, that's hopefully um, what uh, answers your question, Taryn. Um, maybe, possibly. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it starts to, to gesture towards it. If I'm yeah. understanding, um, you know, the modular nature of trainings that are not institutionally bound so consequently have a 
capacity to be um, more responsive and adaptive mm -hmm. as a basis. And then the experience that comes from actually doing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it sounds to me like, you know, I'm, I think part of the question I'm asking is like, again, so how, how we can potentially without being subject to the rigidity of a systemic structure that is essentially generated by bureaucrats, Mm -hmm. um, even if they're bureaucrats that might be within a discipline, how we could maybe reimagine an educational process that is oriented in such a way that um, there's a path for someone to follow. Mm -hmm. Doesn't necessarily have to be entirely linear, but there is a path that somebody could follow and identify yeah. if they wanted to learn how to do this well. And yeah. in this case, the this mm. I'm thinking of is Chinese medicine. <laughs> yeah, um, access. That's something that like schools do not provide, like yeah. higher education, right? That's right. first and foremost, right? Um, that's what the profession does not allow, right? I mean, you have to go through some form of college education to get access to even enroll in school, right? Right, that's true. Um, you have to pass a fucking TOEFL exam if you're an international student, with, I think the score is now 60, which is the same as UCLA, right? So like that marginalizes people. The whole aspect of you strip down your education of acupuncture school mm -hmm. um, in itself, that can literally be taught in like a few weeks. Right. Mm -hmm. You cut from the bare bones of things, you know? I, I know this because I teach TCM in seven days. So like mm -hmm. literally from, I did that in England for five years, you know? Um, and I came and it came out with practitioners who really knew well TCM, but also how to deal with bodies, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that's seven days they learned that, right. you know what I mean? So there's no magic behind it, but we're, sure. we're led to believe. So to answer your question, I also, also believe in each one, teach one, you know, um, that to share this knowledge base and to like really be kind of. Um, you can be attached to one teacher or have many new teachers, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But um, at the end of the day, you know, within the realm of protecting your patients, you know, I think that should ought to be like the baseline, right? Um, mm -hmm. Everything else is extra, you know, everything else is literally extra. Um, so the passing down the line from person to person, I think a good teacher um, will teach you, or at least I think, so I'm, that's some loaded shit. I should say that I, I find a good teacher is someone who recognizes that you're just a mirror to the patient and mm. their body. Um, I try to teach patients how to like take care of themselves, um, albeit needling themselves, you know, or like herbs that they should take, you know, that they can like figure out for themselves, you know, at, at the end of the day um, and give them the resources to do that. So that's like the punk rock in me, you know, like that's kind of that like DIY ethic that I like that I come into with. I think Volker Scheid, he asked me once, he's like, what's your biggest inspiration? I'm like punk rock. And he's just like, oh, and then he, and he just starts cracking up. And um, yeah, I think punk rock was a huge inspiration for me because it really like opened the doors 
of the mess that like doing things where you can create a world by just doing it yourself. You know what I mean? It might be a little bit messy, but you know, I think when it comes to institutional power, there creates these boxes, mm. you know, and these boxes are what really inhibits people from their potential, you know? Um, and what I, do you think about, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Lucas. Yeah. I was going to say, what do you think about, because uh, the systems in place are probably not going to change, at least not readily. Mm. Um, what do you think about um, having a, whether it's mandatory or suggested um, mentorship while you're going through school? Like, So you're going to your master's program and then you have to enroll in some kind of apprenticeship as well. Because mm. I was thinking... <clears throat> As a, um, I think Tara and I had this conversation too about like the 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 trend now in the industry is to like push for the first professional doctoral degree. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Which you know I'm I'm sure you have very strong feelings about the same as I do, but um, it, it seems to me that it would behoove the industry a lot more to do like a whole residency mm. afterwards where you're like you know, doing grand rounds with somebody or um, there's an actual clinic that you may be able to go to where you're pseudo supervised, you know, where you're doing your own clinic loads. You're basically like on your own, but you're still under the supervision of somebody, Mm. you know, I mean, that's like playing ball with them with the model, but it's at the same time, you're probably getting a decent amount of benefit. And that first year when you're super scared and you don't know what you're doing, you're still supervised somewhat, you know, but I like, I followed Nigel Dawes for like two years mm. after school mm. and that was the most helpful thing I could have done in my postgraduate experience because it was like, you know, I'm watching somebody who's been doing this for a really long time and um, like all the little things that, that um, cause insecurities with your patient interaction you're seeing somebody who who just seamlessly does it because you know been doing it for 25 30 years Mm -hmm. so you sort of by um just by being in their sphere sort of you know leech off a little bit of their confidence Mm. you know um and then obviously you're gaining you know you can ask them questions and gain actual like knowledge from that but like the little things like um, you know, the way that they palpate or the way that they like ask their questions and what they don't ask because mm. they don't need to, because the 10 questions aren't always relevant. And you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's invaluable. So I'm going to answer that. You don't fucking need school for that. True. Yeah. That's all like from the beginning, yeah. you just answered your, like, you just went on this process of how <laughs> Nigel Dawes like taught you and all this like hands-on things. Okay, great, mm-hmm. awesome. You know, patient yeah. care, that confidence. Why the fuck do you need four years of school to do that? When he can just take sure. you on, you can start like learning from him. And then when you're confident enough, I mean, this is like how tattoo artists do shit. You know what I mean? I know tattoo artists a lot because my the people who shared next door, Nathan Mold, M M and M, um, part of the White Willow Collective, they're um, uh, black ink artists um it's all apprentice model stuff you know and there's no like and 
Pennsylvania is kind of wild, wild west when it comes to tattoos too. You know, there's not this like a strict like kind of educational process that are required for most. I think it's even on a city basis, like the realms of um, like training. But um, yeah, I think you kind of answered your own question. You don't even need a fucking school for that. And in fact, that and and you you said that like um, to changing the system, you don't see it happening. It's already fucking happening, and I it will fucking burn whether it's by itself or from, you know, in the capitalist modes of production that people will stop enrolling and their enrollment rates are dropping. So, oh, they are. Oh, oh yeah. They're substantially dropping. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the saving grace for a lot of these schools was to have that kind of um, doctoral extension to a lot of the people's masters. You know, you just pay $10,000 to schools that I won't mention, and then they'll give you a doctorate, you know? So like, to answer your question, all that shit's unnecessary. And that's what I'm arguing in the I Am For Us conference is that in order for the medicine to survive, the profession must burn, you know? And all this training you need, you don't fucking need a school for that, you know? Mm -hmm. In fact, like schools are the biggest detriment to having that knowledge, you know? Um, and, you know, decentering all that whole mechanism, it really, you know, it's funny that people talk about authenticity with like this with acupuncture well you know like the way things have been practiced are relatively new you know and even in the realm of professionalization of acupuncture it's relatively new even the needles that we have been using right china didn't use those thin solid filiform needles until the 1930s you know so when you really try to like unpackage all these things it's even more reason why the profession should fucking burn why it shouldn't exist, you know, and it's only on it's only built on an artifice on that people believe it exists so that it should exist. It's the illusion of within the mod modernity of disciplinary power that's saying like, well, we have a profession and a professional organization. Thus, it means we're legitimate. Mm -hmm. So it's based on a false premise. You know, do you think that if in the um the post-apocalypse of the the acupuncture institution yeah. that like it would sort of reinforce uh, orientalism again absolutely sort of yeah well reinforce it or not it already exists you know it's like yeah yeah but, but it's like the, the it's a multitude of orientalisms you know that's mm -hmm. i mean that's a process but like the question is is that even within the context of self-orientalism I'm guilty of it when I first started, you know, like I, I, I find it kind of funny cause I can actually play the race card and like, it's like one of the few professions where I can play the race card and it works, you know, in my favor, you know what I mean? I hate to say it, but at the same time, I'm treated like a fucking sacred pariah, you know, I'm sacred on one side, but you can't fucking touch me because you know, he's otherness. Right. And that's the like thing about it is I open that up in my monograph is that like we're treated like sacred pariah, you know, and we don't we're not human. We are sacred, you know, and we can't touch. We can't be touched either. You know, we're homo sacker in that degree. Right. From the Giorgio Agamben context, like we're outside with the we're outside of the context of like sovereign power in a lot of ways, too. Um, you know, not in the elements of like judicial law. Well, that was historically how Chinese were treated until 1943. But 
Um, you know, that's the ongoing kind of undulation of things. Is, is Orientalism escapable? No, but there's also more avenues of awareness, you know? Mm -hmm. um, there's more avenues of like bringing um, knowledge to these different kinds of ways of practicing and doings, you know what I mean? Where it can be more educated, you know? But the big thing is, is that you don't have to have this institutional power that tells you what ought to be seen as the way medicine to be practiced, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's the thing is that it's this sanctioned mechanism of Orientalism. Because Orientalism is based on some kind of sovereign power, right? The Edward Said opens up Orientalism with identifying the East Indian, the Dutch East Indian Company, right? Um, and then it became the British East Indian Company. And that's what expanded the Orientalist project of colonialism. You know, um, I don't believe that you can fully decolonize things because we live in, look around you, a colonial world, you know, colonialisms. But that's also not to say that we can't critique other realms of colonialism with like the context of like the People's Republic of China, Han, hegemonic Han, um, imperialist project as well, colonialist project as well. Um, and that's one of the things I find that professionalization kind of stokes that fire of like this Han hegemony, right? Um, because even Tibetan practitioners can't do sarkap, which is golden needle, um, because it's considered acupuncture, right? So you have this culture that's completely marginalized by Han Chinese and the People Republic of China um, to the point where they can't even practice um, their cultures, um, the cultural lineages that are gyu, literally, in that sense, um, the roots of their practices um, because of this hegemonic force, right? So in realms of, um, yeah, I think it's funny, the FPD thing too, it's like, like you're it's creating a snowball right it's creating this small ball and it's rolling down this hill and it's just getting bigger and bigger you know how do you stop it well it's got to crash somewhere you know so if it's only if it's by its own doing or some other like i don't know a boulder or something like that you know it's got to end somewhere because it's not sustainable it, and mind you you know one of the rhetorics that i heard in the field was that the differences there I heard that there's no differences between the nonprofit schools and the for-profit schools. That's complete bullshit. If anyone knows about a nonprofit, the money goes back to the organization. For profits, you're giving money to the shareholders. I mean that's that doesn't take a genius to figure that out. But this rhetoric kept on appearing and I say what what keeps on stoking on, on this? But there's specific actors who push that like party line too. You know, and that's the other mechanism of it. It's centralized. There's specific agents and actors who, like, determine the uh, the outcome and the and the determination of the profession. You know, when you decenter that and decouple that, then you know there's many different avenues to go. And to be honest with you, you know, the dialogues that we have and the rich dialogues that you hear um, with, you know, you had. Um, um, uh, Ed Neal talking about this kind of like hermeneutic approach to Chinese medicine. Well, okay, that's great, 
but that's primarily relegated to the humanities, you know, and to some degree the social sciences. So we're in a profession that where it's determined on what's most authentic is actually relegated to something that would be argued within the humanities, you know, but we're in this kind of tension between, oh, well, we're trying to be a medical field, a medical profession, but most of the things that are quote unquote authentic or classical or have this authority, whether it's classical or canonical medicine, I've heard that, right? It's like, it's pushed on this epistemology of something that would be argued within the humanities um, through sinologists and Chinese studies, right? Um, Paul Unschuld, who translated the Ling Xu and the Su Wen, the Neijing, right, one of the first who translated it in its entirety, he's not a practitioner. He's a historian. He's a sinologist, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the thing is that, like, great, there's this idea of a scholar physician. Okay, great. But can you actually write for an academic journal article, like a sinological, like, academic journal article and get accepted? You know, and actually read commentaries of what people had to say about the Ling Shu. Not just the Ling Shu itself, but actual the commentaries. You might learn stuff from it. You know what I mean? I mean, that's totally out of the equation. So even the action of the doings of textual analysis of hermeneutics is not even like done in the orthodox way, which is fine, you know. But, you know, you can't really call yourself a scholar unless you're like actually accepted within the scholarly fields of that element. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it, it seems that like um, the profession and people in the profession are like pulled in many different directions, but they don't have, they don't fit fully within like the suitable um, competencies of what is expected, especially within the clinical sciences. You have these first professional doctors saying, we're going to get you enrolled so that you can be clinically equipped. Well, who's going to hire you, right? And especially with your credentials, like unless you have like some rare rare acceptance, which was the University of Washington accepted some of the um, doctorates in acupuncture schools, right? That's so rare to get into the clinical sciences, you know, like... Uh, whether your what other, what your thoughts on that is neither here nor there, but the point is is that that the level of training that are been taught at these doctoral programs are inadequate for even a master's level program, uh-huh. you know, in the clinical sciences. So and within the the aspect of textual analysis, right, it's inadequate for like a master's program in like sinological studies, you know. So um, Chinese studies, you know, so these elements are never really like critiqued, but they're just done. And I think that there needs to be a self-analysis of reflexivity, if you will, of the profession. Needs to look at itself in the mirror and saying like, okay, and stop. And instead of saying I'm number one on the top shit to being like, I don't even meet the minimum standards of a master's. (laughs) You know what I mean? So uh, what is expected to be taught as like what, you know, they perceive to be a scholar in something, you know, but like I said, if you're really going to base it on like just treating patients, which is a whole other angle, you just need to fucking like not hurt someone, you know, and be (laughs) respectful to a patient. That's it. 
-hmm. you know well, i would add one more dynamic I oh would, yeah i would hope that also you might do some good yes right because yes. otherwise Absolutely. it's just hanging out with a friend right you know yeah. I mean? <laughs> yeah 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 um, which is why i keep circling back to the skill acquisition like refinement question on that i, I do yeah. want to mm. say um one thing that i don't know that ed necessarily speaks to in that conversation but having been his student for a while now um, he would be the first person to tell you because he has told us time and time again that the kind of textual analysis he's doing is not synology and he's in no mm -hmm. way claiming to be that kind of a scholar okay. yeah um, and he also would be the first person to tell you that he is interested in collaboration with folks that do have that level of understanding mm. and when you if you were to take his course he brings in folks to talk yeah. about language and history who really do have the chops to do that there are yeah. often folks that have like phds in sinology and ancient chinese history but also are practitioners so they have a particularly yeah. interesting orientation totally and then on the medical end he's really interested in in the long term um doing a lot more and sponsoring, trying to encourage a lot more research that would be looked at favorably from within other medical disciplines. So these things that you're addressing, I wouldn't say in any way, I'm not talking about these dynamics with Ed to suggest that those aren't super relevant questions, yeah. but I just want to give him props for actually thinking them through and having yeah. a coherent position about them people okay. can agree with it or not right but he's he that's not lost on him yeah mm -hmm. so i would like to add to that like i'm behooved to have been the student of vivian Lowe and her whole program in chinese health and humanities at university mm -hmm. college london yeah um who has raked in brilliant scholars that are mostly practitioners yeah. but also became synologist because of her, oh, yeah. you know? Um, and so that's why my bar is a little bit high because I am like so blessed to have her as my supervisor. Um, and from that, she's had brilliant, 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 like mind blowing, like scholars come from her. Um, Michael Stadmauer is, um, or is it Michael Stanley Baker is one of them who's like um, an aficionado synologist, like, brilliant 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 chinese medicine scholar that um we both learned from vivian Lowe, right um who really helped coax us on our way and vivian's um chinese health and humanities program humanity not humanities um at ucl is like one of the greatest like projects to do that also volker scheid's program at university of westminster is another that like merges the two worlds together um, uh, George Lewis at University of Southampton is a little bit more clinically based, but like from the start there, you know, it is merging those worlds around and having this dialogue, you know, and like openly talking about. It. And that's why I think like people across the pond have a lot to offer. And one of the great, um, the late great Hugh McPherson was, was really trying to bridge those gaps because he was at the University of Leeds, right? But he also was like um, one of the leading researchers in acupuncture in a clinical setting, you know, um, and he's like one of my um, one of my really close friends in England 
Ian Fitzpatrick, who is also a medical anthropologist who went to Oxford and became a community acupuncturist. Um, you know, he was one of the um, uh, students of Hugh McPherson, a really close friend of Hugh McPherson. And I, I really have to say that, like, these scholars, you know, um, have a lot to offer, but are completely ignored in, like, the American context, you know? Volker Scheid has done amazing, amazing work, not only in anthropology, medical anthropology, but in the realm of, like, he wrote the book of Bensky, Formulas and Strategies, you know what I mean? And continually writing books on, like, Chinese herbalism, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that man is brilliant, you know, and he's, like, intensely academically rigorous, right? So there's something to be said about that, you know, that, like, you know, why look for these scholars when these scholars exist, you know what I mean? Like, and I, can, I have, you know, if Ed wants to reach out to me, I have so many other scholars that he can be in contact with, you know? Um, and there's, some, there's something to be said about that. But at the end of the day, these scholars are from England, you know? And these scholars in England, there's no laws. You know, they can be the principal investigators, you know? And this mm -hmm. goes back to what I've been arguing before of deprofessionalization, right? Mm -hmm. Or deregulation, you know? Like, that's the biggest impediment of all this research. I want physician assistants to practice acupuncture. I want nurses. I want doctors. I want DOs. I want um, uh, drug counselors because they're at the front lines. You know, what was really upsetting to me the last time I was on the Book of Faces is that, like, there's these acupuncturists that have been hustling these workshops for thousands of dollars saying that we have treatments and cures for um, uh, addiction dependency, right? For substance dependency. And then I say, great, if you have it, why haven't you published in like an academic peer review journal about it? Because that's what you do in the clinical sciences. They say no, and then they just like ad hominently attack me, you know? So like, I'm like, yeah, that's the logic of the profession, you know? And I'm like, okay, so, like, they're not going to share their data, so they just want you to buy into the workshop, you know? Like, last time I checked, that's the, like, definition of a snake oil salesperson, right? You know? So, I mean, that's a disservice to the um, medicine. That's a disservice to the potentialities to the medicine when you have things like that. But I can tell you this, that, you know, if you give, if you give drug, special, like, drug, drug counselors the opportunity to have those resources and tools. Maybe we can find ways to better combat the um, op opioid epidemic, you know? Um, we can have better tools of like helping people with, um, in a non-harm way of like educating their bodies, you know, them treating themselves, you know what I mean? Like that's one of the things that I think, um, I think, well, Mike Smith talked about that and, he, and another, pioneer who passed away, who I had a really kind of fictitious kind of encounter with, um, you know, he said like my main goal was to give handout needles to people, you know, acupuncture needles to people um, while in the methadone clinics. Ironically enough, he created the professional um, regulations back in the 70s too, you know what I mean? So like, and didn't do anything to tear that shit down, mm -hmm. you know? So like, I think we ought to be serious in taking it down. And the first step to doing that is like contacting the FDA, 
and declassifying it, you know, or at least get rid of the subsections, you know, because there's more regulations on the acupuncture needle than there is for a syringe needle. You know, literally the folks across my door, my hallway is prevention point. They hand out clean needles to people, you know, so for harm reduction, I mean, like this should be, this shouldn't even be argued, but it's the profession, which is his own enemy. And it's the white people in the profession, no offense, but like that have created this mechanism of professionalization, you know, mm. don't get me wrong. And Nevada is a little bit different, you know, but like, um, other places has created this mechanism and power with the ACOM, with the council of colleges, with the NCCAOM, you know, those institutions are a house of cards. They've always been, you know, even though they have subject matter experts, but what is actually their expertise, you know, like it's see it's stuff they see in their clinic. Well, there's so many variables to that, you know, um, and I think that's one of the things is becomes this anti-competitiveness too, because if you stand against it, they squash you, you know? So even though the whole dry needling debate is technically breaking the Sherman Act of anti-competitiveness, right? And the big thing is this, there is no universal definition for acupuncture. Still, every state has a completely different law. Every national organization has a completely different definition. There is no consensus of what the term acupuncture actually is. You get what I'm saying? So how can people so firmly argue for something that doesn't actually have a consensus of what it is? There's over 32 titles after people's name of what you get after you graduate. That's how united we are, <laughs> right? So I'm saying like, you know what we can really be united on? Taking this shit down. Right? Mm -hmm. Put your effort, fuck all these state laws, put it where it actually matters, which is on the federal level. And I come, mm. and this is the last chapter of my monograph, spoiler alert, is to inform the FDA, you know, to like get rid of the subsection that only relegates it to professionals or um, tr licensed practitioners. And I'm talking to you like acupuncture needle um, stores too, distributors, mm. right? You're responsible for this too. Mm. You're responsible for putting this, like this, the gatekeeping of this as well. You know, it's this whole mechanism in place. You know. How do you feel about the uh, herbal regulation now? Like you had mentioned a little bit in the dissertation about, you know, we have to respect the potency of the herbs, um, but you know. I, your message resounding is that we need to, you know, deregulate. So, like, how do you feel about all that? Because I find it incredibly frustrating that we keep getting a lot of our pharmacopoeia taken down that we can't use mm. in our formulas. And it's it's crippling, especially with a lot of the COVID side effects yeah. or even treatment of COVID. Imagine that. Yeah. Well, so one of the things, are you referring to Fedra? But like, um, it's one of them. Yeah. 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 I mean, Fedra, you know, the big thing of Fedra was a part of the drug war against meth. Right. So like, um, that's one of the aspects, but the thing is, is that the herb, it's so hard to like outlaw herbs in general because of the 1994 dietary supplements act, you get powerful people. Like, I hate to say it, 
Joe Rogan, who's like selling supplements on the like daily on his show. The the supplements um, lobby is huge and is impermeable, right? You're more it's a hundred times maybe sorry hundred thousand times more easy to take down the acupuncture profession than to actually like you know put more I guess safeguards into supplements and herbs you know um, a lot of that's self-regulatory you know the because of the Dietary Supplements Act when it comes to regulations of herbs unless it has potential risk to the general public um, all I can really say is that ginseng still exists. It's endangered species, you know, especially American ginseng, you know. So, like, they, there's no real safeguards on that, you know, um, especially a lot of the other endangered species when it comes to um, uh, um, Chinese herbal formulas, Chinese herbalism, right? Like, there's no real, I mean, there's safeguards into that to a degree of no importing those in, right? But, you know, I think completely creating regulations on that it's not possible you know i think so oh, go ahead i was gonna say is everybody just punking out then because as far as i can read it says that kind of the op the annoying opposite which is that um it has not been proven safe basically yeah. so one of the things well i mean like in terms of ephedra or mahuang so that's yeah, what I, sidebar though yeah if you are a registered herbalist mm -hmm. and you register with camlo mm -hmm. you can get formulas that have mawang in them they will but i have i've looked be, and they don't i haven't been able to get them recently they just sent an email out this morning that said hey oh, it's oh. fall don't you need your mawang <laughs> they won't sell really? you the single herb but okay. if you you know as an herbalist mm -hmm. right um, and there is some registration process where they want to make bet this, that, and the other thing, a whole other conversation. But nonetheless, I mean, they are absolutely offering to people that, you know, are licensed appropriately the opportunity to use formulas that have mawang in them. Because as they say, and as y'all know, like, what's the best substitute for mawang? Mawang, right? It, right. Like, <laughs> it does what it does, but they're not, they're not going to sell you they won't sell it to you by itself. And let me ask you this, like, has there been any implementation or enforcement of burning Ma Huang if you grow it yourself too? You get what well, I'm saying? What I'm... It's a weed and it grows naturally around that's here. Right. So I don't understand why we're yeah. all having a big hubbub. You get what anyway. I'm saying? So there's no massive <laughs> yeah. burnings about it, like in the news or anything like that. Right. You get what I'm saying? Right. So um, it's not like, it's not a class three. Um, I don't know if it's a class two. But, um, you know, there's, it's not a class three controlled substance. That's mm -hmm. what I'm trying to argue, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and there's other things like fucking mad honey, you know what I mean? Like that's not a class three thing, not yet, you know, but like, those are things that are auspices by the state and what they determine is like, you know, a health that may pose a potential health risk, you know? Um, so that's a very political dynamic and a very particular case-to-case um, -case basis rather than just saying all dietary supplements. Because if that was true, Walmart and Walgreens would be in a huge shit because they found out a lot of their garlic, even their garlic supplements, didn't really have garlic in it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, there's a huge investigation like 
pre-COVID about this, you know. So, but the dietary supplements lobby is really strong, and I don't think there's going to be any threats to that um, besides self-imposed, you know. So um, there's something to be said that, about that. But in in Europe, it's heavily regulated, you know. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. Um, but yeah, that's one of the things that like I find interesting. You know, I think even I wrote in my um, dissertation about like when they were passing the 1994 Dietary Supplements Act, you had the biggest superstar, Mel Gibson, you know, um, having a commercial. You can find it on YouTube where the SWAT team invades his mansion and he's like, it's only vitamin C, guys, you know. So I think what what the FDA is trying to protect is false claims. Now, that's another issue, though. You know, false claims is like a fucking serious thing. You can't say that this is treating COVID or even right. COVID-related things. That's fucking dangerous to say that shit, you know? Um, so, yeah. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, I get the slippery slope there. Um I, was, we, I even listened to some um, some online lecture about that. I forget the gentleman's name right now. But he was very specific about that. He's like, listen, <laughs> just just don't. Just don't say it treats any of that stuff. Because, yeah. in, in, I mean, the reality is we're not treating it. Yeah. We're not treating the virus. We're not treating, you know. Yeah. We're treating the, the pattern anyway. So. Yeah. 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 I mean, Taryn, what are, um, I don't know, Taryn, you said you read, last time we talked, 40% of the dissertation? I finished it. I had oh, read 40% it, okay. when, I, when I messaged you, but yeah, no, I, I, read, I read all of it. Um, you know, I think for me, one of the most powerful things about it was really getting a sense of the history, mm. um, both in terms of how Chinese medicine and I'm going to use that term really broadly at the moment, um, came to this country, mm. right? Um, and the challenges that the folks who were the original practitioners had in just trying to make a living and help people. Yeah. You know, I mean, not that that was surprising, but I certainly didn't have the resolution in my understanding mm -hmm. of like what that looked like and who some of mm -hmm. those players were and how that then gave rise to, you know, the profession that I'm a practitioner within today. So yeah. that kind of um, rooted contextual and historical explication was like s super powerful for me to, to be able to, come into relationship with and it's kind of shocking to me that that's not part and I know you said your dissertation is now in two schools but it's shocking to me that in what is ostensibly a lineage based discipline at least to some degree that this is not really part of the conversation at least that I've ever experienced and you know granted there's people that are much more um scholastically and academically inclined than I am mm. but you know I've been in this game for a minute yeah. and I've certainly worked with a lot of different folks it's the first time that I've I've come across this particular way of talking about the history 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, you know, so there's that rooted piece and then the kind of systemic piece of really understanding more about the dynamics of what gave rise to licensure and legalization and um, who those players are less about their biographies and more about the kinds of um, ways that they were situated within certain kinds of contexts of of power and privilege also not a shock right but not anything that i've ever had the opportunity to see laid out yeah you know so i i didn't ever take any time you know for me it was like i went to graduate school graduate school i know like is a set of hoops that one has to jump through turns out the graduate school that i went to was pretty good in the main but nonetheless like i saw it as you know a hoop and then there's the board exams right to get a license which is another set of hoops i never really paid much mind to those certifying organizations because i was like well every profession that i know of in this country has them right it just didn't occur to me um to dig any deeper because i was like it doesn't matter what i do if i want to do something other than like you know work in a restaurant or yeah i mean in these days some of that even you know there's certification programs that people might from time to time want you to engage with but yeah it, it it never occurred to me to like dive into that and take it apart and understand it so yeah i have found that incredibly instructive and useful um and cool. i would really encourage anybody i mean i would encourage anybody if you have any interest in this field at all to read this dissertation but certainly if you are within this field i would not want to presume to tell anybody what is required of them but i would say my feeling for myself is that I, I would wish that this were required reading yeah. um, because I think it opens up. Well, it opens up understanding. Certainly um, it's really important to know where we come from and we in the broadest sense, Yeah. but also I think it opens up the possibility for important and fruitful kinds of conversation that um, without having some sense of this context, I think those those conversations are not not going to have the breadth or depth that I think it, it's really relevant, important, and I would even say perhaps necessary for yeah. them to have, so that we can start to understand both where we've come from, where we are, and where we might go. So this is one of the things that I wanted to segue. We got a few minutes here. Um, I wanted to go into so there's this one chapter. Um, called imperfect decaying bodies. And I think one of the things that we need to accept is that um, I think one of the traps that we're falling into when it comes to Chinese medicine in particular is this idea of balance and harmony. Hmm. I don't know about you, but I've never seen a like harmoniously, perfectly harmonious or balanced person in my life. Um, and I am like, for me particularly, if you're um, one of the lucky ones who've ever um, who I've actually fell in love with, you know, like I like the people who are imperfect, right? And this goes into the helm, um, the, this will all connect, but like this goes into the helm of like the idea of like imperfection and even like, so in Chinese medicine, we have yin yang, Tao, et cetera, et cetera. But in, in Ayurvedic medicine and in um, Soa Rigpa, Tibetan medicine, there's this idea of what they call, um, so it's literally the three, the doshas, the three dosha, three doshas. 
And then in Tibetan, it's called Nyepasum, which is the, um, anyways, both, both Nyepasum, which translates to three illnesses or diseases, and Tridosha literally means the same. Tridosha literally means three diseases too. You know, so um, that, for, like, to Ayurvedic and Tibetan practitioners, they see the body as a disease, right, to begin with. Form as a disease, right, instead of, like, in harmony. Like, and there's an etymology for the word dosha, because dosha comes from the root dus. Dus is, um, Indo Sanskrit's Indo-European, so dus has the same etymology as the Greek term dis, as in dysentery, dystopia, etc. right? Um, so the perceptual analysis for me has always been like, I, I don't see, I like the imperfections of people. You know, like, um, that's what I fall in love with is people's imperfections. I don't fall in love with like the great things about it. And when we start to look, understand the medicine, what do we actually see? We see patterns of disease. We don't see patterns of health, right? <laughs> Um, but with that being said, my whole analysis of the profession, you can call it pessimism, you can call it nihilism, I don't really care. But what it, the perceptual framework is that the profession is an imperfect, decaying body, right? But it's been on fucking life support, you know? Um, and it's, it, it's the decision in the future to let it be on life support in a vegetative state, but just like add more, um, give it new pillows or something like that to make it seem it looks better or a new room, or like, you know, it's time to call it quits, mm -hmm. you know, because the thing is, is that you're only perpetuating a bad cycle, a cycle, not bad cycle, but a cycle of utter decay. And the, the people of the product and the victims of this will be the people who are paying the price, literally for the schools, for the licensing and all that stuff, you know. Um, and what I what I was trying to do with the whole dissertation is to and for the monograph is to show people that there are these artifices in life that are created haphazardly, and no one's ever checked on it, right? To be like, okay, well, this is never good to begin with, right? This is not never really adequate to begin with, right? But in the process, look at all the marginalization that has been created from it. You know what I mean? So like- I do, I just think it's like, this is the nature of, and I'm, I'm not saying this to excuse it, but I'm saying, I think what you're speaking to is much broader and deeper than our profession. And it's like, this characterizes the modern era from my point yeah. of view, right? Yeah. So yeah. my- my question right which is i don't think has an answer though of course both of you please answer it at, at your will and leisure but i mean i think that what we're touching into are these really large kind of like civilization level questions about what are the nature of systems you know that are inherently unsustainable yeah. and what are what do we do or not do in relationship to next steps right like i'm not trying to get into a solutionist sort of mindset but i i think that you know um 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm about to repeat myself, but I'm just saying, I feel like we're talking about something that is so much bigger than the profession. And I think it's totally on point yeah. um, that I just want to acknowledge what is like, you know, the fucking black hole elephant blue whale in the room yeah right which is that like all of these dynamics are at play everywhere they are the water that we're swimming in at this moment yeah and yeah and so <laughs> in response to that one answer might be actually from i got this from a crass album best before yeah. 1984 but like it was actually they quoted Lao Tzu in the delta ching um, they they translated it a little bit differently. I like kind of like their translation. My favorite like Delta Ching is Ursula Wynn's translation. But but the thing is is that they said um, it was the one about leaders that the mm-hmm. actual leader by the Tao is that who is leaderless or doesn't show that there's a presence of being a leader. Right. And I think that the trajectory that ought to be if we're gonna go into the realm of Taoist like practices, right, mm-hmm. is that like you don't even know it, that there's these mechanisms not not knowing that the mechanism is in place, but there's no overt semblance of governance. Right. You know what I mean? That people are just doing things, you know? I'm not like some fucking anarcho-capitalist or like libertarian bullshit. Like, I, I believe that there people should, there should be safeguards in protecting patients, right? But I do also feel that in this medicine in particular and other institutions, you know, that when you're leaving things to just let it be, you know, and let things take its course, you know, um, albeit like in a very more horizontal way, you know, rather than this kind of vertical authoritarian hierarchical way, you're having a lot more potentialities, you know, but it's also changing the plane in which it exists on as well, you know, and that's the hard part. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad this is the part two. It was a good part two to end, end with, you know. Um, totally. Yeah. Um, I want to thank you all again for inviting me um, here. Our pleasure. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's been awesome. Um, yeah, and we didn't even get into, not that I'm suggesting we open this particular uh, volume right now, but we didn't even get into community acupuncture and kind of the dynamics of that, both in terms of its social and uh, political and economic situatedness, and also, you know, how it does its strengths and weaknesses as a way of practicing medicine, which I think is a really interesting potential conversation, maybe even that we could think about for the future and finding some other folks to also participate in that conversation. Yeah, yeah, so um, my friend Elisa Rodeluder, and a skip van meter they're the founders of um, polka and and um, polka tech yeah there would be really good people to um, interview but also like the thing about the community acupuncture model um is that if you really want to see what's authentically practiced in like vietnam or the prc mm-hmm. there's what they're doing is very close to it yeah you know like when i was in vietnam when i was 17 years old the first thing I noticed is that, I mean, it's segregated on like women one side, men on the other, but like, it's just all these bodies in the same room and you're needling them like crazy, like, mm-hmm. like dozens of bodies, right? Yeah. All in the same room, sharing the same space, you know? Yeah. And that like, that's where I got my training. And that's why I thought like community acupuncture was really um, 
uh, suitable for mm -hmm. um, the authentic kind of feel of um, what acupuncture that I learned from was. Right. We will put a pin let's, in yeah, that pin that. particular direction, but <laughs> cool. I think that's something interesting to think about for the future. So, yeah, Tyler, cool. thanks, thanks, man. Thank it's you all very such much. A total pleasure. Thanks, Tyler. I really appreciate yeah. it. Cool. All right, y'all have a good one. Um, be safe out there. You too, right, man. You too. All right, take care.